0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 78, verse 38. This is one of only two psalms, as far as I can see that is divided into multiple sections to be read over consecutive days in the RMM Bible reading plan. If you haven't listened to the program on the first half of Psalm 78, obviously you will want to do that before coming back here for Asaph's conclusion. As I mentioned in the first episode, this is a teaching psalm or a wisdom psalm. Asaph intends to review the history of Israel in order to highlight what he considers the fundamental principle. He's focused on the period of history stretching from the Exodus to the Davidic dynasty, and he is particularly interested in how Ephraim lost primacy among the tribes to Judah. At the end of the book of Genesis, which would be just prior to the period of the Exodus, Joseph was clearly at the top of the pile. Jacob had assigned Joseph a double portion, a double blessing. And that's why we talk about Ephraim and Manasseh as opposed to speaking about the tribe of Joseph. Joseph's slice of the pie was doubled. So he was at the top and he was literally swimming in blessing and favor. And yet by the time of Asaph, Ephraim and Manasseh were in steep decline and the tribe of Judah had gained ascendancy. So Asaph is watching some fall and others rise and he's asking the question, what hand and what factors lie behind it all? J. Alec Mateer offers this analysis of Psalm 78 as a whole. Behind their defeat lay disobedience, and behind their disobedience lay forgetfulness. This, in a nutshell, is Asaph's explanation of the enigma of history considered from the human point of view," closed quote. Now that's an important phrase for us to flag, from the human point of view. Asaph's review has two dimensions to it. He is thinking about the human factor and he is thinking about the divine factor. He's reading history so as to figure out what it is that we do that is responsible, humanly speaking, for our relative power and prosperity but then he's also looking at who God is and how God acts in these same stories in order to understand his essential character and nature. And that's why you read the Bible. In the opening sentence of Calvin's Institutes, he says, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Closed quote. So, Asaph would have fit in very well in Geneva. He is reading history, and he's looking for the right two things. As I mentioned in the first episode, Asaph offers two parallel reviews of history. The first one looks at the Exodus and the desert wandering, and this second one, which we'll look at today, looks at the Exodus, the wandering, and the conquest. So he repeats and extends his summary. That's a very common Hebrew technique. In this second extended review, there is more emphasis on who God is and how God responds to our forgetfulness and rebellion. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. Now, as I mentioned, in this section, the emphasis shifts a little bit toward the consideration of who God is toward us in our forgetfulness and rebellion, yet he being compassionate. So God is presented here as being compassionate and merciful and affected by the rebellion of his people. Look at verse 41. The ESV has this as they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Now, the Hebrew word translated by the ESV as provoked is tava to make a mark. So, God was not unaffected. It it made an impression on him, dare we say. What, What they did had an impact on God. But we have to look at the context to ascertain precisely what that impact was. The New American Standard actually translates the last half of verse 41 this way. It says, They pained the Holy One of Israel. Willem van Gemmeren is very helpful here. He says, humanly speaking, Israel as a child caused great trouble to his heavenly father in the wilderness. The Lord had shown his fatherly care in Egypt and in the wilderness. In turn, the Lord had expected his people to sanctify his holy name in an everlasting remembrance in the sense that Israel would proclaim, speak about, and sing praises to his name, closed quote. That's a very accessible description of how the forgetfulness and rebellion of Israel affected God. I would imagine that most human fathers can relate to that. We give to our children, we provide for them, we make sacrifices for them, we love them, And we tend to expect that they will think well of us and speak well of us. And we are often disappointed, at least initially. Israel's response is not appropriate given all that God has done for their salvation. And he begins to review that now in verse 44. He begins to speak about God's signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Verse 44, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He's speaking here, of course, about the plagues in Egypt. Verse 45, He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Now, obviously, that's just a review of the 10 plagues. It's poetic and stylistic. Asaph doesn't mention each plague, but rather presents a representative summary, culminating, as we would expect, with the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. By means of these plagues, Yahweh humbled the greatest empire in the ancient world and purchased redemption for the people of Israel. That act alone ought to have ensured the perpetual gratitude and trust of his people. If God has already defeated the greatest enemy you can imagine, then why would you not trust him with every lesser thing? A similar argument is made in the New Testament. If God has already demonstrated his power and commitment to us in the matter of Christ's death upon the cross, why would we continue to worry? Why would we doubt that in his perfect timing he will... Give to us all things. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Close quote. If God has done the biggest thing already, why do you not trust him in the little things? But as we remember from Asaph's first summary of Israelite history. That was not to be. Verse 52. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. As I mentioned, here is where Asaph's second review stretches beyond the focus of his initial review. He has spoken of the Exodus and the wandering, but now here he touches upon the conquest and the settlement of God's people in the Promised Land. Surely that additional kindness would elicit some kind of positive response from his people. Surely now they would trust him. Having defeated Egypt and adding to that the defeat of several other nations greater and stronger than Israel, surely now the people would rest easy in his love and care. Verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. So if the main sin was rebellion in the first review, the main sin is idolatry in the second review. Not only did they not respond to God the way they should, they actually turned to other gods, the gods of the nations that Yahweh had just defeated, gods who were no gods, gods who had no power and had demonstrated no love for them as people. This was a bridge too far. Verse 59. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Machir explains here, Shiloh was the religious center during the Ephraimite supremacy. The psalm returns here to its starting place in verse nine, the defeat of Ephraim, Close quote. So again, this has been Asaph's primary interest all along. He is David's choir master. He is a religious official in an Israelite dynasty that the reader of Genesis and even Exodus would never have anticipated existing. How did we get here? Why is a shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah sitting as king on God's holy mountain? That is the question that Asaph is trying to answer and trying to highlight and make evident to us. The answer, humanly speaking, thus far would seem to be that Ephraim was arrogant and ungrateful. They did not appreciate or remember or honor God as they should have. The Lord is not mocked. He is not dishonored. He is compassionate, but he is not weak. He is capable of severity. And though slow to anger, his wrath is unendurable. Ephraim played with fire and was burned. And yet the Lord was not done with his people. Verse 65, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout, he put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Here is illustrated another psalm, Psalm 30 verse 5, which says, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. God did judge. His wrath was awful and severe, but the cloud passed. His strange work was done, and his favor endures for a lifetime. He meets our sin and our rebellion with grace. He gave his people to shepherd who trembled before the word of God. It was David that represented the climax of this psalm for Asaph. David was God's mercy that triumphed over judgment. But of course, reading as we are on the other side of the incarnation, the cross, and the empty tomb, we know that This psalm ultimately pointed forward to David's greater son, who, like Asaph, brought out the true and hidden meaning of history. All who forget who he is and what he has done will end up like the generation in the wilderness. Their years will vanish like a breath, and they will end their lives in terror. They will not enter his rest. But all who receive him, all who remember him and respond to him as they should... We'll find in him the bread of heaven, the water of life, the land of promise, the joy of his presence, and favor forevermore. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. Of course, the easiest way to make use of all the material we have at Into of the Word is is by getting a hold of our app. You can find that at the Apple App Store or Google Play, and it very helpfully organizes all the materials that we've produced over the years. You can also connect with us on Facebook, and I hope that you do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements, conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here for another episode of Into the Word.